0: Well, if you did not pass the friendship pad on the center aisle, if you're sitting on the center aisle, would you grab that and sign it? Uh, If you're a regular attender, or member here at Woodhaven. uh, And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're delighted that you're here. Um, Very, very glad you're with us. And uh, we'd love to have you uh, just jot your name down on there and like to send you a thank you, just a little gift. and appreciate you being with us this morning. I hope the service, uh, the singing and the, the sermon and all of it is an encouragement to you. Uh, and presents Christ in all of his glory uh, this morning. That's our that's our ambition here. That's our goal here. Um, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, it's where we're going to be. I was not planning on spending four Sundays in this first section of this, and uh, I will endeavor to go more quickly through the rest of the book so that we're not here until 2050. Um, so, uh, I don't know uh, if you regularly exercise or what your exercise routine looks like, but I want to throw something out there that you can start training for this morning. This particular race is something that takes place in Hawaii, so that's a good start, it's a good something to shoot for there. This race is called the Epic Five Challenge. And it's in August of 2020, so you've got a little less than a year to get going and be prepared for this. You better get on the ball though, because the Epic 5 Challenge is a triathlon. And if you're not familiar with a triathlon, a triathlon has three different phases to it, and it's a race that involves swimming, biking, and running. And you start out by swimming 2.4 miles. I'm out already. Then after you swim 2.4 miles, you bike 112 miles, and then immediately following that, you put your bike to the side and you run a full marathon of 26.2 miles, all of that consecutively. Now that sounds crazy to do all three of those consecutively on the same day in and of themselves, but what is unique about the Epic Five Challenge is that you do a full triathlon every day for five consecutive days. And each of those triathlons takes place on a different island in Hawaii. And I believe I looked on the website, and when you sign up for this, this may put you over the top to wanting to do it. You get your own personal photographer to document your journey. So mine would be a very short journey. <laughs> I believe I would drown after a few hundred feet in the, the swimming phase of it. But obviously, this is an extreme race, Um, and to sign up for something like this, you have to have a lot of experience, and it takes an unbelievable amount of endurance and perseverance to make it through even one of these days, much less all five of them. Now, this morning, I want to ask you a question that's not related to physical endurance. It's related to spiritual endurance. What makes you think that you will be able to remain faithful to the Lord? What makes you think that you will make it to the end of your Christian life? Maybe you never even thought about that before. Maybe you sort of assumed it and you've never considered that question of why you think you will remain faithful to the Lord throughout your life. We've seen recently a couple of very high profile Christians or people that claim to be Christians who have apostatized, who have said, I no longer, I renounce Christianity. I renounce the Bible. I'm, I'm moving away from that and I don't believe it anymore. Let me unsettle you a little bit regarding perseverance and endurance this morning from the Bible, from Colossians chapter 1. This is a passage that very clearly, you don't have to turn there, I'll put it on the screen, but very clearly outlines the gospel. But I want you to notice in particular the way this ends. I'll read it to you. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a glorious description of the gospel and the end goal of the gospel. But listen to this. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, And of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can see very clearly in this passage that it does matter that you continue in the faith, that you persevere, that you make it to the end. Endurance matters in this race. Now, maybe that's a little unsettling, and some of you are probably sitting there going, Yeah, but Pastor, I've always heard once saved, always saved. And I understand that statement, and it's it's true in some ways. I get the sentiment behind it, but I think it's phrased in a way that is, is not accurately reflecting biblical teaching. It seems to be saying that you can sort of make a profession of faith and say you believe in Christ, and then it really doesn't matter what happens after that. Once you're saved, it's sort of like getting a, a pass and a ticket into heaven, and then Whatever happens after that is not really that important, and it doesn't matter. And you can sort of file away your ticket and forget about it. Now, I'm not here this morning to tell you you can lose your salvation because I don't believe that, and the Bible doesn't teach that at all. That is a grave error, that you can lose your salvation. But I am here to tell you that we need to think biblically about salvation, and we need to think biblically about the importance of endurance in the faith and continuing to not be moved away from the hope that we have. Because of the gospel. Salvation is not a ticket that you get, and then you just sort of forget about it, and it doesn't change you at all. Endurance matters. 1 John puts it like this. These people who he calls them antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Right? They were with us for a while, but they weren't really of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are, all are not of us. They didn't continue with us. They claimed Christ, they were with us for a while, but they didn't finish the race. And because they didn't finish the race, they proved that they were never really in the race. They were professors and not possessors of true salvation. Now, that might be terrifying to you this morning because... You're thinking, I don't feel strong enough to be able to hold on to the faith, to be able to endure in this. I don't have it. To you, maybe saying that you have to remain faithful in the Christian life is like saying that I have to run five triathlons on five different days on five different islands. That's not something I could ever do. It's hopeless for me. And I don't want to frighten you this morning and unsettle you, but I do want to encourage you. And I think the path to encouragement lies in doubting my own ability to endure. And in recognizing I don't have the ability to make it all the way to the end. I can't keep my hope stable. But encouragement comes from understanding the gift of God's grace that will keep us and will hold us and will cause us to remain hopeful and connected to the gospel, and it will ensure that we do make it to the end. It's not dependent on you. Ultimately, it's dependent on him and his keeping power. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, we're going to be at the very end of this, verses 13 and 14 this morning. And this is, this is the last benefit that that we're looking at in this passage. We've been here for, I guess, a month now. But this is one long sentence from verses three, all verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. And there are benefits that have come to us because of our position in Christ. And all of these flow out of verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. These benefits, these spiritual benefits, we have them because we're in Christ. And then he goes on in verses 4 to 14 to outline these benefits, these blessings to us. This is what we've been looking at. So the first one of these was in verses four to six. We are adopted into God's family. This is a tremendous blessing and benefit. We're chosen by him before the foundation of the world. We're adopted. We're accepted into God's family as his children, which is an amazing thing. We are united with Christ and we are seen as the beloved because God looks at his beloved son and rejoices and delights in him. And we are in him then he delights in us. And we're adopted into his family as well. The second benefit moves from the father's work to the son's work. We are redeemed by the son's work and for his purpose in verses 7 through 12. The adoption that we have in Christ only happens. We're only brought into the family through the son's work on our behalf. We're freed from our sin. We're redeemed. Remember that? We're forgiven of our sins. And all of that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and through what he's done. And those benefits come to us of redemption and forgiveness of sins, and they come to us so that we can find out how we fit into the grand purpose that God is accomplishing in all of creation. And the goal is for everything to be brought to you, to be united under Jesus Christ. He's the sum of everything. He's the main point. He rules over all in authority and honor and glory. And that brings us to our third and final benefit here in verses 13 and 14. We are sealed by the Spirit until we arrive. Verses 13 and 14. So if you're you're kind of tracking here, in the first benefit we saw the Father's actions in eternity past, and then we saw the Son's actions in the second benefit 2,000 years ago. So these things are in the past, and of course they have ongoing results in our lives today. They shape us today. But now, today, we're going to look at what we're currently experiencing. The Father's work in the past, the Son's work in the past, and now what's happening currently in us? And what benefit are we, are we experiencing now in our daily lives? So it's like we've gone from God's perspective in choosing and adopting and redeeming to our perspective of salvation. He chooses in eternity past. But how do we actually, in the present time, come to salvation? What's the, the human perspective on this? What actually happened from our side? And this is what's described at the beginning of verse 13. Look at there. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You and I received the redemption and the forgiveness That God has planned for us by hearing, first of all, the word of truth. You hear the gospel. That's how it comes to you. Paul puts this very clearly in Romans 10. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage if you've been in church. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or speaking this to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You have to hear the truths of the gospel of the word of God. And and this is why I stand up here every week and talk for 40 minutes. I'm sure it seems odd to worldly people But I don't do this because I have an ego trip and I really like talking for long periods of time. I don't do this because I'm particularly smart and insightful. Quite the opposite. I do this because the goal is to make the word of God, the word of truth, as clear as possible. I speak from the Bible because this is the word of truth. You and I are flooded every day with worldviews and perspectives that claim to be truth, that say to us, this is the way things really are. Things like, you know, the physical world is all there is. This is it. It's all material. And you can arrive at the truth by just observing what's around you. There's not any spiritual. There's no higher powers. It's all material. This life is all we get. This is it. Or... You're told things like this. Every person has to construct their own moral reasoning and their, mor- their own personal morality. You have to live your truth. I have to live my truth. And that truth comes from my personal desires. So be who you feel like you are. And those are just a couple of ideas that are presented to us as true and as accurate but they're really false. They don't match up with how things really are and they don't match up with the word of God. Paul is saying here in verse 13 that this is the word of truth. This book is the accurate description of reality. Tells us how things are. It reveals to us the creator of reality and how he has structured things and how he has ordered things. And it tells us what he's doing in the world and how we fit into that. But the amazing thing about this book is it's not just cold and abstract scientific truth. It's good news. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and then he defines that word of truth further, the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. The the word gospel means good news. It's a news report that comes to you from outside telling you about some event that has happened, and it's good news, and it testifies, it reports the salvation that comes to us. It's the word that brings salvation to us. And that salvation comes to us as this word testifies to the work that Jesus Christ has done. The redemption that he has accomplished, the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. And it's good news to us because it frees us from bondage to sin. That is incredibly good news. It frees us from ourselves and living for ourselves and frees us to live as we were designed to live for our own good, which is ultimately the glory of God. And so what Paul says is you you heard this word of truth, you heard this gospel, this good news involving your salvation, your redemption from sin, and maybe you heard this hundreds of times and you sat there with a cold heart and it didn't really impact you and it didn't affect you and you heard the word, but then at some point you heard this word and something else happened to you. Continue reading in verse 13. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. Your heart and your mind latched on to this message of deliverance and this message of forgiveness, and you thought, that's it. That's right. But it's more than just saying, that's it. That's right. It's not just mental agreement with what is being spoken. It's not just acknowledgement that Jesus died on the cross. Belief goes further than mental agreement. When it says you believed here, it means you recognized I am a sinner. The way the Bible describes me is true. I'm a sinner deserving of God's wrath. I'm in bondage to sin, and I need to be free, and I'm deserving of eternal punishment. I have lived life on my own terms, the way the Bible says I've lived my life. I've rejected God through my actions and through my desires. And so to truly believe the message of salvation involves repentance of sins. It means I recognize my sin It means I look at myself and I look at this book and I say, this book is describing me. It is reading me. It is telling me who I am. And if this book is true, then my circumstances are dire. Apart from Christ, I am in a whole lot of trouble. I am enslaved to my sin and I need freedom. And that freedom is not something I can do myself. I cannot loosen my chains. I cannot rise from the dead on my own. That freedom comes from having my sins paid for and wiped away completely. And how can I have that? I can only have that through the one who has paid for my sins. He took my place on the cross and he paid the ransom payment, the redemption payment to God for me. And so when you, many of you in this room, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of salvation, and you believed, you recognized yourself as a sinner, you came to grips with that and you said, I want freedom from sin. I need it. I've offended God and I need it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believed in him, something else gloriously happened to you. Look further in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is the main idea in this passage. And this is why our our third benefit is that you were sealed until you arrive. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In 2015, uh, there was an archaeological dig over in Jerusalem right around the Temple Mount. And there are lots of these type of digs. And at this excavation site, they discovered a tiny piece of clay, very, very small. And this piece of clay had the seal of King Hezekiah from the Old Testament pressed into it. And you could clearly, I've seen a picture of it, you could clearly see the seal and the, on the little piece of clay there. It's really interesting, it has a, a sun with two wings, uh, on, the, on the outside extending from the sun and written in Hebrew that, that you can see there and read if you read Hebrew, it says on, on the inscription there, it says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. And this was the first time they very clearly had a seal, the result of a seal from, from this Old Testament king, from Hezekiah. And so what would happen is, Hezekiah had a ring on his finger as the king, and he would press that seal on the ring into some wax or into some clay, and he would seal a document or some item with his seal. And when he did that, it did two things for that item or for that document. First of all, it showed that that item belonged to him. It belonged to the king. It was his. It was a mark of identification, and it showed ownership, and it showed his authority over that item. And second, because the king owned that item, and it was very clearly marked as the king's with that seal, that item was to be protected. In other words, the seal communicated to anyone that held that scroll or possessed that item that if you... Mess with this item. If you damage it, if you do anything to this that shouldn't be done, the full weight and power of the king of Judah will come for you. Now, we are not sealed physically in the same way, but we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he's called the promised Holy Spirit here because this is not the first time that he's talked about in Scripture, obviously. What happens is in the Old Testament, the prophets looked forward to the new covenant. They looked forward to this changes that would happen, and they looked forward to this with the expectation that God would dwell in his people in this new covenant. God's spirit would reside in his people when this new covenant was inaugurated. And because his spirit was residing in them, which he didn't in the Old Testament, now they would have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. They would have a heart with new desires. And instead of being bent away from God because his spirit would dwell in them, they would be bent toward God. And they would have desires that wanted to obey him and wanted to walk with him. Listen to Ezekiel 36. New covenant promise here, and I will give you a new heart. I mean, if you go back to Deuteronomy, this was the problem with Israel. Moses tells them, you need a new heart, but you don't have one. God says, I will, in the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. And then Jesus picked up this promise in the New Testament and told his disciples, listen, when I leave, I know you're sad about me leaving, but when I leave, something even better is going to happen to you than my physical presence here, which is hard for us to imagine. But here's what he said in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So if you have heard the truth and you have believed The good news of the gospel, you have been sealed with the Spirit who has been promised. You are a partaker of the new covenant. That sounds great, but what does that functionally mean for us today, this week? Well, for starters, if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are owned and you are protected by the King of the universe, He has adopted you into his family and he has marked you with his mark of identification and you belong to him. But it's important that you realize that because you belong to him and because you've been marked by him and identified as his own and indwelt by his Holy Spirit, that there has been a fundamental change in who you are. You are not sealed with the Spirit and remain the same person with the same desires. When you're sealed by the King, your identity has changed. You now belong to Him. And your life looks a lot different than it did. Being sealed with the Spirit means that His Spirit is at work in you. And He is changing you day by day. Flip over in the book of Ephesians to chapter 2, verse 18. Probably just one page for you. I want to show you the the work of the Spirit inside you now if you're sealed by the Spirit. Verse 18, for through him, through Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the, one, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God who's doing this work, the Spirit is. As he seals you and indwells you, he is working in you. And he's doing a couple of things. He has bound you together with other believers. We're all growing together. We need one another in our sanctification, in our life together. But he builds us up. And this doesn't just mean that he encourages us in tough times. It means that we are being built into a holy temple by the Spirit. We are being fundamentally changed. We are being set apart. Our desires, our thinking, our actions are being set apart from the world and we are being made into a holy temple for God to dwell in. And what that means for you and I is that together we are growing and should be growing, if the Spirit marks us, in practical holiness and practical morality. What does that look like? Well, it looks like Everything in chapters 4 to 6 of the book of Ephesians. You are marked by the Spirit, and this way of living, this walk, this lifestyle will be worked out in your daily experience. In fact, Paul even says that when you are marked by the Spirit, you will sin at times, but when you sin, you're actually going against your new identity. This is not who you are. Look at chapter 4 and verse 30. This is in a whole set of instructions where he's saying, don't be like you previously were. Don't be like the Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding. No, you have been changed by Christ, so live that way. And look what he says in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this fundamental change takes place in you. You are a different person now. And it takes place in you because of what this seal indicates. Go back to chapter one and look at verse 14. We're sealed in verse 13 with the promised Holy Spirit, partakers of the new covenant. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the guarantee. This is a a financial term. It means a down payment. He's the down payment. It's the first payment, and it signifies that there's more payments to come like this first payment. Verse 14 says, We are the Spirit is the down payment, and that we are God's inheritance. You can read this. He's the guarantee of our inheritance, as if the inheritance is something that we are going to get in the future. But I actually think the better way to read this is like we read verse 11, that we are his possession. We are his inheritance. It's not something we will gain, but we are his. And the Spirit is the initial installment of God taking ownership of us. We've been sealed by his Spirit and we belong to him. And so since we have this first payment, this initial down payment here, you're looking forward to the final payment, right? I mean, you make the first payment in anticipation of that final payment. We have a 30-year mortgage on our house, and we are two and a half years into it, which is kind of disheartening. (laughs) But right now, I'm living between the first payment and the final payment. I'm living in between. So, what's the final payment here in verse 14? I don't even want to tell you when the final payment will be for my mortgage. But here, with the Holy Spirit, He's the down payment. He's the initial payment. What is the final payment? He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And I actually think this, again, is better read saying that until God redeems His possession. The word here is the same word that was used in verse 7 for redemption. And God is the only one in the New Testament who redeems. And so what this is describing here is us being, the Spirit being our first down payment, God beginning to take ownership of us, and now we're living in between, but we're anticipating the day when he will fully and finally redeem us and take possession of us, and sin will be gone, even its presence from us. So you've got the initial redemption, the sealing with the Spirit, and then you've got the final redemption, when we're in his presence and fully free from sin at all. And so what this verse is promising here, this goes all the way back to the beginning, what this verse is promising here is that you've been sealed, the first payment has been made, more are coming like it, and there will be a final payment, and God will keep you until the end. He will make sure to make that final payment. And he will make sure to fully and finally free you from sin and redeem you and bring you into his presence. That's what he's doing. You will endure. If you've truly been, heard the gospel, you have truly believed, you've been sealed with his spirit as the first payment on this, God will make the last payment. You will endure, you will persevere. There will be difficulty, but you will make it. I think 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 5. You can flip over there if you want. I think it's a really helpful explanation of this, of what living in between looks like, because that's, that's what we're doing right now, right? We're living in between the first payment and the, the final redemption when the mortgage is paid off. We're living in between. And Second Corinthians 5, I think, describes this beautifully. Verse 1, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, right? We're living in between, we're waiting, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee, right? Living in between. And I love the way Paul describes it in Second Corinthians because there's not a person in this room this morning who's not groaning, It's hard. Living in between is hard. Life is hard. Money is in short supply. Politics is frustrating. Church people get on your nerves. The pastor bugs. Your body hurts. Car breaks down. And I want to tell you this morning that one of the most amazing benefits you have if you've heard the gospel and you have believed is that you have been sealed and you will make it. You won't turn away. He's the guarantee that God will uphold you even in the groaning and the difficulty. You'll persevere. That he will, and even right now, he is doing his work in you. Let him do his work. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be connected to the Spirit, because He's the guarantee, and He will sustain. So one of the things I do when I'm working through these passages is I I read different books and on different topics that are discussed in these passages. I read commentaries, but I read some other stuff as well. And this week, I I opened up a a very old confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's from 1689. And there's a section in that confession that deals with the perseverance of believers, the endurance of believers in this life. And it was so helpful. I don't normally read Confessions of Faith from the pulpit on Sunday, but it was so helpful and so worshipful that I thought I would close by reading this to you this morning. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against the saints, yet these things shall never be able to sweep them off the foundation and rock which they are fastened upon by faith. Even though through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sight and feeling of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet God is still the same. And they are sure to be kept by his power until their salvation is complete, when they shall enjoy the purchased possession which is theirs, for they are engraved upon the palm of his hands, and their names have been written in his book of life from all eternity. Let's pray. God, we can't make it on our own. We're not strong enough. We don't have the endurance. There's no way we could do it. But that's why we we come to you this morning. We're needy people. And we need to be filled with the spirit. We need to be empowered by your spirit. And I thank you so much that you have sealed us with your spirit. We, We will endure. You will sustain us through this life, through the difficulties, through the groaning, through our time in this earthly tent. We will make it, Lord, because of you. We will receive that building that you are preparing for us in the heavens and we will be fully and finally your possession and things will be set right. So I pray this morning that you would encourage us with these truths. I pray that you would challenge us with these truths. I pray that you would give us confidence with these truths to walk out into the world this week and live as your possession, as those who are marked and identified as under your authority and owned by you. We thank you for all you've done for us. What grace, it's in Christ's name we pray.